This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. We also welcome our new friend of the show and member of the Cinemadison group, Jesse Sertle. Hi. <laughs> That's all I got. I don't know if you want any more, but hello, everybody. I'm Jesse. And live in front of our studio audience. So, Jesse, as with all new guests to the show, we'd like to ask a few questions to allow the audience to get to know you. So, first up, just tell us a little about yourself, what you do, and why you love movies. Oh, about myself? I'm old-ish, in the 30s, in the area. Do we even talk about where we're from? Because I'm in the Madison area. I'm in that area. I just do things. I like, I don't know. I'm part of your part of your movie group. And that's what I like to do is watch movies. I think they're really fun. Uh, that's a little bit about myself. I don't want to go deep dive into the the history of Jesse Sertle, so to speak. But the movies themselves, I I like a good story. So if I get a good story of a good movie, that makes a good movie for me. Yeah, you're already jumping the gun to question three. So we'll jump back to question two for a second. What is your favorite movie and why? You already know this, but my favorite movie. It's Big Trouble, Little China. Uh, it's my directed by my favorite director, John Carpenter. I absolutely love it. I'm a huge comedy fan. I love the fact that it's got that role reversal going on within the movie. I love the way that he frames shots. I mean, it's kind of strange that my favorite John Carpenter movie is a comedy, considering like <laughs> the repertoire of his movies, which is all basically all horror movies. But I absolutely love it. I feel it's a great time. I I love the fact that I can bring new people to it and watch it, and they love it too. That's why. And so in lieu of asking the third question, because you already kind of answered what makes a good movie for you, why did you want to talk about Rounders? Why? Do I, well, that goes into the next part where I feel like how we're kind of attached to this movie. It's more like the history of it. So like when you're talking about movies and you're giving kind of that little snapshot of what movies you're looking forward to, and you said Rounders, that stuck out in my head. And I've only seen it a couple of times. And I wanted to really rewatch it again to see exactly how I felt about it, because I have different takeaways from each time I've seen it, especially this last time I watched it. So I was kind of curious what my next takeaway would be from it. So that's, that's kind of why I chose it. Okay. Well, that's a good preamble because tonight for our 188th episode, we discussed the film that started the poker boom with rounders from 1998, celebrating its 25th anniversary this year, directed by John Dahl, written by David Levine and Brian Koppelman. Music by Christopher Young, starring Matt Damon as Mike McDermott, or Mikey McDee. Edward Norton as Lester Worm Murphy. John Malkovic as Teddy KGB. John Turturro as Joey Kanish. Famke Jansen as Petra. Murphy Geyer as Sergeant Detweiler. Michael Rispoli as Grandma. Just an odd name for, I, supposedly, the enforcer in the movie. I thought it was Graham. <laughs> It was Grandma? It was Grandma. Oh. Yeah. They just yeah I think it. he's supposed to be Italian. I don't know what he was supposed to be. <laughs> Martin Landau as Judge Abe Petrovsky and Gretchen Maul as Joe. 
Recognition for this movie, Rounders was wide released on September 11th, 1998. On a budget of roughly $12 million, it would go on to make only $22.9 million domestically, with no international releases, to finish as the 90th highest grossing film of 1998. Critics were mildly warm of the film at the time, but it became a cult classic during the poker boom of the early 2000s as poker, specifically Texas Hold'em, was widely televised across cable. There are pro poker players who credit the film for getting them into the game. The film drew in successful players such as Brian Rast, Hivad Khan, Gavin Griffin, and Dutch Boyd. Vanessa Russo has said of the film's influence, There have been lots of movies that have included poker, but only Rounders really captures the energy and tension in the game. And that's why it stands as the best poker movie ever made. Rounders currently holds a 64% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 54 score on Metacritic, and a 3.5 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So, as we start each week, Dad, what is your relationship to this movie? This movie was released during a very difficult or troublesome period in my life so quite frankly until you brought this movie up about a year year and a half ago i'd never even heard of it you had me watch it i thought it was pretty good so this is only the second time i've seen it how about you jesse i was a little probably a little too young when it came out because it came out in 98 so i was about 10 at that time so I don't have, you know, a recollection of what exactly was going on in 1998. But my relationship started with this movie about 10 years ago. I actually watched it with my father. And like how I saw it is basically it kind of gave me a reflection of back to my earlier times of like the early 2000s. Because I played poker a lot with my friends in middle school and early high school. So it kind of gave me those kind of flashbacks to what I call fun times with my friends. And then... Obviously, the second time I watched it, kind of grew a little bit closer to the movie, more for the the comedic side, but I'll get into that a little bit further because the things I found absolutely hilarious about the movie. And then just basically going back to this third time and just really deep diving and seeing the exact core of the movie that I wasn't really paying attention to in the first couple of times. So I distinctly remember watching this in or on Easter Sunday, 2019. And the only reason that I remember that that specifically is because it's the last time that when I put on a movie, I was so engrossed, I lost all sense of time. I just succumbed to the movie. To say I love this movie would be somewhat of an understatement. I love this movie. I don't know what about it exactly works so well. There is a 10-minute segment in here that I could probably skip through, and that's when they get busted at the cop game. But other than that, that one 10-minute segment, I just love it, particularly whenever Mike's at the table playing. It's just such a great moment to see his mind work, see how he's reading people, let him narrate, and the kind of noir factor of what goes into this movie. It's a sports movie, but told with a noir setting. And so, especially because I've always enjoyed Poker, I used to watch the World Series of Poker on TV when I was in like high school and college and such, and I occasionally played. Dad still thinks he can beat me regularly, but that's another day, another time. Regardless, I've always enjoyed card movies. 
I think it's one of the best elements of Casino Royale, which is one of the better Bond movies for me as well. So it's combining things that I really enjoy and like. This is something I've been looking forward to discussing, even though I would almost guarantee it's not going to place highly on our list. The Bond movies. I'm going to have to mention, never seen a single Bond movie. Really? No. Hmm. Just never been interested in them. So you're not much of an action film fan or a spy oh, I like thriller action. fan? I just don't know. It's just something about those movies that just never had any sort of draw to them. Hmm. Okay. So what is this movie about? Who wants to go first? Well, since you spoke, you were it. <laughs> okay. I spoke up. I, I felt like three couple of things coming on. I thought it was a come in terms to oneself portion of the movie, especially he's really learning about himself and what he's about. Um, I saw a lot of themes of addiction. Um, mm. Obviously, the the one right on the head is obviously the gambling addiction, but I, they almost phrase it more like an actual an actual addiction. An act, I'm sorry, it, they frame more phrase it more like a an addiction to like drinking, an addiction to drugs. That's how it's kind of framed, like as compared to I don't know. I just say I just see it's addiction. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. And then actually, like you you talk about his card playing. I saw it as an inability to read people throughout the movie and then learn and then basically learning how to read people. Cause there's many scenes that I see throughout the movie. He is just oblivious to the situation that's happening around him. And it's not until the very end that things just start clicking for him when he starts making sense and everything goes forward and he feels like he's grown as a person. But like, that's, that's what I feel about. That's a lot different than kind of the ways that I've looked at the movie for a while. But dad, what do you think? Well, it's, it is about being true to yourself. And quite frankly, I, I mean, your comment about him not picking up on people around, that's interesting. There's a lot about being a lawyer, and especially a trial lawyer, that's very similar to what they're doing. I mean, I used to instruct my clients, if we had a trial, to sit facing the jury with their posture being open and their arms wide like they're being like they're almost hugging the jury because it comes across as being I'm an honest likable person and I would literally kick people who didn't follow that pattern I would just kind of bang them like remember what I told you because that's kind of the whole thing is and then watching the reaction of people on the stand I mean a trial lawyer you're listening to the testimony, you're watching the, the witness, you're watching the jury, you're thinking about the next question, you're thinking about the evidence, you think about seven different layers, which is very similar to what a poker player is. So I thought it was an extremely interesting choice to have him being both a poker player and a law student, because quite frankly, the skills he had could easily be translated from one to the other. I think doesn't he, he mentions that in one scene as well, or or was it his girlfriend that says that's what he talks about? No, it's an early scene where she has apparently instructed him that he should use his skills at the poker table. This is when he's first retired mm-hmm. to to enhance his law practice or how he goes about his trial work potentially. So yeah, that's part of the film, definitely. Well, one of the things, though, that you said about addiction, I didn't think about it as addiction so much as you get hooked on the adrenaline associated with it. And when you're a trial lawyer, there's an adrenaline that comes through 
with being in trial and winning. Losing, the adrenaline kind of evaporates quite quickly. But still, you can see the adrenaline flowing through him. I would have been curious. He never really had an opportunity to really use his skills as a lawyer, even in mock trial. He botched that up royally. It would have been interesting to see whether he would have gotten the same level of adrenaline rush from being a lawyer as he would have been from a poker player. I guess we'll never know about that portion. Rodgers, too. And I think we all three kind of focused on different things. To me, the movie is a lot about hanging on to friends way too long when you have a certain loyalty, but you can't necessarily walk away. I look at this as the redemption of Mike McDee, but only after he realizes he has to drop his childhood friend. So who you choose as your friends is almost as important as knowing what your own career path will be. Yes, there is a note of destiny and destiny choosing us because Petrovsky clearly states that near the end of the movie. But at the same time, I think Mike's biggest hindrance, that's why I find the addiction angle fascinating because I guess I hadn't necessarily noticed that as much, but it makes sense, is that he's kind of addicted to the life and Worm gets him back into it, but only by pushing Worm off to the side or realizing that he has to do it without him, does he actually rise above his problems? Like I said, that when I mentioned about the reading people, it's just, I, I just noticed it throughout the whole movie that other than Mike, because it's Mike, Matt, and his character's Mike, right? Yes. Other yes, than Mike McDee. Just makes making sure. Like he's just, I, I just felt like he's really oblivious to the situations that he is in throughout the whole movie. Like starting from that first scene when he comes in, he's got three stacks of high society. He's cashing it, and he's like, he doesn't notice the face. You could see it on KGB's face right away. Like, there's there's the shark. That's right. I mean, the first time I seen it, that's what I saw. Oh, shark just saw the bl- blood in the water. He's going for the kill. Like, he's not realizing that situation. Or like, like I said, you talked about the scene where, the, your, I guess your least favorite scene where the the cops are beating them up. I I see it beforehand. Like, the entire scene, like everyone's wearing their tells, like their emotional tells of the scene, like. Like, right when he walks in, that's the first thing I'm thinking. Like, what are you doing here? Like, this is a bad situation. Everyone obviously doesn't trust you. They think they're going to be, they think you're going to try to rob them to begin with. Like, there, there's so many tells, and especially uh, his, his friend, Edward, Edward Norton's character, when he's in there. Like, you could, <laughs> like, he's just like a reading a book. Just like, like, the whole time when he's t- giving the cards and, you know, he's throwing the cards back, he's folding them. You could see right in his face, his anger, his anguish. Like, why did you throw it away? It's a made hand I just gave you. Like, you just see, like, those are just examples that I'm seeing. But, like, he's just, throughout the whole movie, like, every single character that's around him is, like, they're showing their emotions towards him. And he's just, he's just oblivious the whole time. And it's not, I think it's not until the very end when he, 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 he finally spots a tell. He spots KGB's tell that's finally, he finally kind of clicks and he finally kind of understands what everyone's looking at these situations and how they're, how they're reacting to everything as compared to what he's thinking. Ultimately, the scene with the cops that you don't like, Tom, is the tell, the tell of Worm. It tells what Worm's real character is, that he's more about himself and trying to find an angle 
than following with the direction that his friends want or that's the one that's going to play the best. Yeah, I totally agree about that. So this movie is often credited with starting the poker boom of the late 90s, early 2000s, along with Chris Moneymaker winning the World Series of Poker, I think in 2003. But what exactly about this movie do you think could have contributed towards that, given that it was not a very successful movie when it initially came out? I would assume just as pro, it's a it's campaign, it's promotional campaign. If I recall right, they actually had Matt Damon and Ed Morton go to like the World Series of Poker and actually play it. Yeah, I have a note about that a little later. You kind of you stole. I, the, I, the well, you're asking that. how you think it contributed to it. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> well, I I don't I think it contributed, but I don't think that's the real reason. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when we only had network TV and cable was revolutionary, and then we had a bunch of extra channels, and then the reason this really caught on, yeah, the film probably kind of motivated some people to look at it more closely, but at, at some point in time, ESPN and TNT and all these, they were looking for any kind of content they could put on without paying a lot just to have people watch eyeballs for a few minutes. And so I don't know if this really had a, had the credit with the boom as much as it kind of played into the general gist of looking for something to fill in and people kind of saw the movie. They thought it would be kind of interesting. Then they watched the world poker tour and pretty soon they're, kind of hooked so i don't think it caused but i think it probably helped fuel i would agree it's i'm like i don't think it's like i said i i, I mentioned that portion about ed and matt doing the actual world series of poker but i don't think it had that great of effect on like the poker boom to me personally i felt like the bigger effect of poker boom was actual internet poker getting people attached to it you got poker into the actual homes I thought that was a bigger thing because, like, if, you know, before 10 years ago, I never even heard of rounders, and I played poker in, like, in the early 2000s, and my my biggest attached to it was that ESPN channel playing the poker on ESPN, then having, you know, those early stages of the internet and playing it poker on the internet with friends. That That's that's how I felt like the poker boom expanded to me. I didn't, I didn't really see this movie, but, like, that's how I think about it. If we're going to say ESPN, it should be noted that this was on ESPN for like 10 years before it kind of hit big as a thing. And that's why I brought in the element of Chris Moneymaker, who was one of the first like average Joes to win the World Series of Poker. I think that's part of the reason that some of this took off. One, yes, Texas Hold'em is a little bit easier to explain than some of the rules of the other games. And yes, they're still playing some of the other games in here. But the fact that its two most critical scenes are Texas Hold'em, the Cadillac of poker, as uh, put to us in the movie, <laughs> yeah. I think it does actually give some credit. But part of the elements that I also want to stress in this is for the average person that hadn't really been exposed to poker before, it takes you in kind of the mindset part of the inside baseball of what poker actually is in these areas where it's probably no longer, there aren't these backroom games all over the place and these uh, country club games that are the exclusive ones. It's a little bit more out in the open than it had been at the time. 
And so while some of those still exist, for the table stakes that they were doing at the time, those games are probably more public and in specific clubs where you actually have some licensing to be able to do stuff like that, as opposed to some of this was like an underground poker world at the time. It's now much more popular. And I would say that I, I agree in a in a sense, I guess I hadn't placed my finger on it, but the internet probably has a, an effect on this too. Although, to be fair, the internet no longer has poker and it has kind of declined. So maybe that's a, a leading indicator. So is this a sports movie? Oh, do we consider poker a sport? That's the real question. I don't think it has to necessarily be a sport to be a sports movie. I think this has the beats of a sports movie without necessarily being a sport because it's not a, an athletic endeavor. It is a game, but he loses early on. He walks away. He gets drugged back into the life. You see him fail over and over and over again. And then at the end, he triumphs. To me, that's that's the beats of a sports movie. I don't know. I guess the question is, is how do you define a sports movie? Now, I, I happened to f- see a, a blurb of the uh, actual review by Roger Ebert, and he called it a sports movie. And I'm going, okay, shouldn't we first define what is and is not a sports movie? Because what people say is always a big sports movie is Raging Bull. Except having seen Raging Bull, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I don't think it's really a sports movie. I think it's a character study. So, uh, you know, so sports movies are not necessarily sports movies. And movies that aren't sports movies could be, if you use the broad definition of what I think you are, are, may be sports movies. Not to bring in an old debate that we've had many times on the show, but it seems very similar to what is or is not a Christmas movie. Is it (laughs) movies in where Christmas takes place, or does it have to have some intrinsic value met by Christmas going on at the time? Like, is that somehow intertwined into the actual plot of the movie that Christmas is happening to make it an actual Christmas movie instead of just incidental, like Die Hard is incidental to the plot? The same with, to me, It's a Wonderful Life. It's incidental that Christmas is going on at the time the film is actually happening. That could have been happening at Easter or 4th of July and been just the same movie. But we've now associated that so closely with Christmas. I guess, in a way, this is a sports movie to me because it follows similar beats to what I feel is truly the original sports movie, and that being Rocky. You have the guy who is down and out, and he somewhat triumphs at the end. I know in the original Rocky, he technically loses the fight, but that wasn't the point of Rocky the original. It's the point of all the sequels that he has to win. But in in the first film, at least, it was a little bit more of a high-minded drama that just lasting till the 15th round and proving that he could stand with the champ at the time was enough for him. This is a little bit different. This is much more in the vein of, you know, it it follows a similar structure as Major League or Caddyshack to an extent. All of those to me are sports movies, whereas Raging Bull, I also would say, if you're associating that with being a sports movie, then you have a very loose definition of what a sports movie is because no one triumphs in Raging Bull. True. That is very true. 
But anyway, I, 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 I don't know. I don't know if, again, until you define the terms, it's impossible to assess. So until That's you can tell me what the point of asking sport- the question. I know, but tell me what a sports movie is. No, the point is, is you're supposed to tell me what you think a sports movie is so that we can decide whether this is a sports movie. I don't think there's necessarily a, a definition for a sports movie. Is this a story about overcoming adversity? Yes. This is such great podcasting, Dad. I'd say for me, the sports movie is the the emphasis is the actual sport that's being played. I, I feel like here, like, yeah, he's playing poker, but I feel like the movie's not entirely all about poker. It's it's about him, not how he's dealing with his life at that time. I'm like, it, he could have been done doing anything else other than playing poker and it would have been different. And that's where I kind of pull back to the addiction thing. Like, it could have been, could have been anything else. I just don't feel like, it, it doesn't feel like a sports movie to me. Why do I have this vision of Saturday Night Live doing a sports movie involving croquet? I'm, I guess I could see it. Yes, yeah, the triumph of sending somebody when your balls touch. Lonely Island did several <laughs> sports documentaries like that. Um, didn't, no, I don't. I was just trying to think. I was just like trying to go through my knowledge of SNL to figure out if there's any any sort of sports movie means with crochet or not. Okay, Happy sorry. Gilmore is probably the closest. Mm-hmm. I know. I know they had a scene in Van Wilder. I believe when they're playing croquet, they're they had the the rush students buried. Yes, and they're using that. I remember that. That's the only thing I can remember for it. Yes, and if the ball hit them in the in the nuts, then in the uh, end, yeah, that's the only thing yeah. I can remember. It's a great scene. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just having. I'm just having this picture of Sedacus doing the uh, ESPN play from the bowling oh, tournaments God. and such. <laughs> <sighs> if, if you don't know what who uh, Greg Stink is, go look it up. I, I can't say it here, but we're faced for time. Vagisil. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> Way to take us completely off base. All right. Yeah. I say it's a sports film. Jesse says, no, Dad, you're the tiebreaker. I guess, yes, if you, by the definition, I'm going to say it's a sports film. All right. So let's get some more background on this movie. Dad, do you have our plot summary ready for us? Oh, I do. Rounders is a gripping drama that delves into the underground world of high-stakes poker in New York City. The film follows the story of Mike McDermott, Matt Damon, a talented and passionate poker player who, after losing his entire bankroll in a high-stakes game, swears off gambling to focus on law school and a more conventional life. However, when his childhood friend and reformed hustler, Worm, Edward Norton, is released from prison, Mike is drawn back into the world of underground poker to help Worm pay off his substantial debts. Mike finds himself navigating a treacherous world of deceit and betrayal in the pursuit of redemption. Along the way, he faces off against some of the city's most notorious card sharks, including Teddy, KGB, John Malkovich, in a high-stakes poker showdown. As the tension rises, Mike must use his wit, skill, and an unwavering determination to outplay his opponents and protect himself and those he cares about. Rounders is a thrilling exploration of the psychological and strategic elements of poker, the complexities of friendship, 
than the price one is willing to pay for a second chance at life. Thank you. Did you know Matt Damon and Edward Norton played the $10,000 buy-in Texas Hold'em No Limit Championship event at the 1998 World Series of Poker in Las Vegas. During the first of four days, Matt Damon had pocket kings and was knocked out by former world champion and poker legend Doyle Brunson, who held pocket aces. That's a story to write home about. Did you know? Writers David Levine and Brian Koppelman have cameos in the Atlantic City poker scene. They're two of the players used to illustrate giveaway tells. Did you know? Composer Christopher Young wrote two scores for this film. The first original score he wrote was a completely dramatic work that did not go over too well with the Weinsteins, as well as director John Dahl. Young was then in a bind and was forced to write a second score, which was a jazz-based score featuring a jazz combo orchestra as well as a quintet. Rather than lose and write a complete new score, Young reintegrated the original score with the jazz material, which was met with approval by Dahl. The soundtrack released by Varese Sarabande at the time of the film's release features both elements of the score. Did you know? On the DVD commentary, it's revealed that Edward Norton ad-libbed a number of Worm's lines. Among them was, she crossed her legs too fast, which was a quote from Chinatown. Did you know? According to a Howard Stern interview, the film is partially based on comedian-slash-actor Norm MacDonald. Oh, really? Ah, ah, yeah, I forgot he has a huge, he had a huge gambling addiction. I forgot about that. Wow. <laughs> All right, and with that, we will take our first break, and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week for our 189th episode, we discuss the buddy comedy The Odd Couple from 1968, celebrating its 55th anniversary this year. Directed by Gene Sachs, written by Neil Simon, music by Neil Hefty, starring Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Dad, first up is best performance. Who do you have down? Matt Damon. Matt Damon. Yes. yes. Matt Damon. Yes, yeah, I mean, he kind of made the movie overall. There was a lot of great performances by a lot of character actors, but overall, I thought Matt Damon carried the load and did a pretty good job of portraying a person torn between what he should do and what he wants to do. I love this period of Matt Damon's career when he's in talented Mr. Ripley and Goodwill Hunting and uh, The Rainmaker, several of these kind of like mid-budget films that are probably better than they should be, starring some talented actors that eventually like hit it big. And eventually when he gets into his born phase, like he goes to a different stratosphere as far as a movie star but for me i've always loved matt damon frankly just about anything he puts out i'll probably go see because he's in it it's one of the few people that i will line up and watch their stuff okay and so i also had him as my best performer oh i think he is one of the most charismatic actors currently out there and he doesn't have a problem making fun of himself. That's why he's done all these weird cameos all over the place, but he's just kind of a likable dude. And 
I don't know. I'm always sucked into whatever he's doing. I get behind the character of Mike McBee because honestly, if you can't root for him, the rest of this doesn't work as a sports movie. Well, and after all, how many times has he had to sit and be rescheduled by Kimmel? <laughs> so many times. All right, wow. Jesse. I don't. I don't. I know you two have a bad team, but I don't think this is a very good performance by him. I feel like you got you have two different stages of Matt Damon. I feel like this is his early stage where he's kind of figuring himself out. And then the later stage, once you get to that born, he's kind of have a persona that he portrays for every single movie. I still think his best performance is in Euro Trip, but um, that's my own opinion. <laughs> Speaking of random cameos. <laughs> but, uh, my 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 best performance I had I had Ed Norton down as my best performance. I I I found him absolutely believable as an arrogant scumbag throughout the whole movie. <laughs> I'm like eh. every scene, I'm like just every scene he's in, it's just like I I believed everything he was saying, like and just knew that he was fully in belief that he was the best and he could figure his way out through any situation. And he was completely blind that he is just a scumbag, and everyone knows that. And like he's even if when people are telling him and beating him up, he still thinks. He still thinks he's the cat's meow throughout the whole movie, and he's got everything figured out. Like, like that was a scene. I forgot. I think it was her name was Barbara. That's how they get into that one, that first poker game with the little Michiapis in the uptown. The Um, secret handshake club. The secret handshake club, where he's before that scene, he's all talking himself a big game. Like I, I know Barbara. I got my son. I got my son, and she's got me set up. You know, I tried. He's he's about trying to heal us was going to start, you know, having sex with her before he went into the, into the clink. And then right after that scene, right when they're getting their money and they're walking off, you could see him like try to put his hand on her like, hey, let's go somewhere. And she just brushes him off like, you're, you're scum, you're slime, don't touch me. And, like, he, But he's selling himself so well the whole the whole time. I could believe him. I'm like, oh, maybe, maybe that was. But he's definitely, definitely a very, very good portrayal of what I'd consider a scumbag. Honestly, he is the character that I loathe in this movie. He is the reason that I have problems in that one scene or that one 10 minute stretch where it's just his final descent and you know exactly where it's going the minute that he shows up. But it's still it's like watching a car crash in slow motion. (laughs) You know, I like the bad guys. I always like the bad guys in movies. Yes, you do. Everyone, everyone, if someone hates that character, I absolutely love it. Dad, uh, best secondary performance. I had Ed Norton. He's one of these actors. All right. There are certain actors that I end up developing a relationship with from watching them, how they portray themselves on screen, how they act, and then watching interviews and things. I I just have this preconceived notion that Ed Norton is kind of a slime ball in general. And I, you know, whether he portrays it in the movie or in the things, he just comes across that way to me. You know, it's not often that I feel like this, but he's just somebody I would love to just punch in the face. I I would agree. Yeah. And I don't know if he's really like that. I would hope not, but he seems to play that part so well. It's hard to differentiate between who he is in real life and who he is on the screen but in this case, in this particular case or in this film, it's impossible to not absolutely think he's slime and want to just go, you know, you're sitting there through half the film telling Matt Damon, are you fucking nuts? 
Get away from this moron. I agree. It's he's got a punch me face. But everybody does have that one friend that just cannot help but get them into trouble for things. And for whatever reason, they let them hang around forever. Because they're fun. Yeah. That goes to my point, like Matt. Uh, Mike, Mike Davis Cater, just like completely oblivious to a lot of these things. Yes, you you met mine recently. <laughs> Your mother ago. happens to be my uh, the woman I used to share parents with. Was that to your mother? Ah, uh, well, yeah, yeah. And I remember the uh, certain people that other people kept around because that they were kind of that guy, and I, I never quite understood it. I, I maybe that's why I I can't really separate anything from Ed Norton being worm. He often seems to play the same character. I mean, I know that. Is this the same year he was in American History X? Yes. In fact, when the first scene of the movie happens and he has very short hair in prison and he's got the goatee and then he gets out mm-hmm. of prison, he's shaved it off and his hair's a little bit longer. That's because of the changeover from American History X. Okay. He had to grow it back out and and that sort of thing. So. He, it's the same year he had been nominated for uh, a Academy Award for that performance, but Matt Damon ended up being the one who won that year. But that was for script. Yeah, but that that's because we're kind of on the rise of Ed Norton in the stardom. Yeah. Well, it depends on when you put the exact rise. I think most people would probably put it at Primal Fear because that was like his breakout performance, but it's a bit striking to me that Matt Damon and Ed Norton, who were often up for a lot of the same parts during the nineties, it was like a cast of the same five or six guys up for just about everything. Brandon Fraser, Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, Edward Norton. All of these guys were basically in the same group of about maybe 10 and about four or five of them really like hit big, but that they were constantly going out for the same parts because they all kind of grew up together. Chris O'Donnell was in that group. But if you really want like an encapsulation of all of those people at the same time, school ties like features all of them in it. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's kind of, I think they're kind of like a reflection of the eighties. Cause they kind of had the same thing with uh, the Brad pack. Cause they're all basically from the same sort of area at the same time. Thomas Mapother was the one who emerged. Yes. I remember watching one of his earliest films, which was Taps. Going back into the recesses here. Saw it at the theater. Who did you have as best secondary, Jesse? The character, I think the character's name was Kanish. Yeah, so John DeTuro. Yeah, I I thought that was great. It was a very controlled acting throughout the whole time, controlled performance. You could definitely see that he's I just... Basically, he's trying to eke his way through life. He's trying to make it. He's trying to control his emotions so he can eat, basically eat, do his rent. This is this is a job to him. And like you could see, like, he's he's wearing his emotions. I saw on his face that he's truly upset that his, I guess, his almost his son figure to him is running around with Ed Norton's character, putting himself into a bad situation. But he has no idea. He has no real way of how to kind of talk him out of it. So like it's you could see like I don't know, I guess feel like you could see his emotions running through and through each scene that how he's he's troubled by what's going on, but he's trying to make the best of the situation he is. He's trying to help him throughout the movie the best way he can. 
given how my father talked about him when we were watching the movie over the weekend, I'm surprised that he didn't nominate Totoro here. In fact, I agree. <laughs> I have Totoro as my best secondary performance. And it's partially due to the fact that he can do not only this part effective and well and believable, and I agree with everything that you just said, Jesse, on him and his character and the portrayal and the control, but at the same time, then also be in the same year, the Jesus. <laughs> the Jesus. You gotta get... Oh, yes. Totoro is phenomenal. And not long after this, he was Howard Cosell in a TV movie, and he was dead on. I mean, the guy is one of the more talented character actors in Hollywood. He is phenomenal. I mean, I would, you know, if I had a, if I had an opportunity to have 10 people or 10 actors at a table for dinner, I would want to have him there because I just think he would have so many good stories and so, and he would be able to, to be so personable and explain what he thinks and does with each one of these characters. It would be phenomenal to listen to him. But he's been in so many great movies that that would help. But also he doesn't ever feel like a guy who would take himself too seriously. He's always going to be kind of a character actor and occasionally he'll get his due, but I think he's just more known to the rest of us as a guy who's been putting in the work he's kind of a reflection of this character. Exactly. He shows up, he does his job. He does it very well and effectively. And he goes home. He doesn't need to be like the star of anything or do anything that would be like a showy performance, even though, you know, obviously there are certain flares when it calls for it, i.e. the Jesus. But if you want a great <laughs> John Turturro performance, I'll direct you back to, I think it's about an eight year old mini series on HBO called the night of, where he plays the, uh, the, the lawyer. lawyer yes. Yeah, and that was a fantastic series. It was originally supposed to be Gandolfini, but mm -hmm, Gandolfini yeah. passed away before they started filming, so Totoro had to like pinch hit, and he's amazing in that series. I completely agree. He's great in that. I have I have a slightly different opinion on the series. I thought it was great at the beginning. It kind of petered out towards the end, but yeah, I would I would tend to agree. But even so, I mean, it was what five episodes, so maybe the last episode and a half wasn't great but the you still have the highs of the first three at least oh yeah the first so the first three were great I, I agree with that wholeheartedly so if you need a recommendation during this current actor strike of something to watch because there isn't a lot of new content coming out that'd be one of them dead most charismatic well this is another person i would love at that table john malkovich i i know his accent's horrible whatever doesn't matter the guy is just awesome. I mean, watching him in Dangerous, or Dangerous Liaisons and then watching him in Reds. and I mean, the guy is just great. And he still gets my admiration because he so creeped out my wife from the film. Oh, what in was the line the, of fire in the line of fire? I mean. She had to run out of the room because he so creeped her out because he was a sadistic killer who was threatening the president and Clint Eastwood was a secret service agent. And he, all he did was go, I understand. Uh, you were one of his favorites, but you couldn't save him in Dallas, could you? And it just so creeped her out. I'm like, this guy is so good. The answering machine at the, yeah. I think it's the last scene. 
I, I absolutely love that scene where he's playing. He's kind of that talk with the with Clint Eastwood's character the whole time <laughs> on, on the answer machine. I love I love that scene. I know. I, I just think he's awesome. I would love to just have coffee with him and listen to him and just chat because I think he'd be a blast. He is such a cartoon character in this movie. <laughs> what do you mean? I will splash the pot whenever I fucking please. I mean, his accent has to be up there with some of the worst ones ever put on film. Like I would put it, I would put it near the level of Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins. I had another one. I had Dick Van Dyke and I had another one. I can't think of it. Oh, Tom Hanks doing any kind of Boston accent. Tom Hanks and catch me if you can. Oh, I know. (laughs) That was exactly the other one I had. Oh, that's right, because I haven't remaining questions. It's Malkovich's Russian accent in the movie (laughs) worthy of the Bad Movie Accent Hall of Fame alongside Tom Hanks and Catch Me If You Can and Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, probably. (laughs) All right. Uh, Jesse, most charismatic. I'm in the same boat. <laughs> it, is it is KGB. He he commands the scene. It's either by his just basically <laughs> his persona, how he commands it, how he phrases, how he positions his body and his face and his contortions in it. And then when he opens his mouth and you hear this interesting choice in an accent come out of it, it's just like you're you're drawn away from it. Like you could be in the most up, it could be the most dramatic scene, the most intense scene in the entire movie. And then he opens his mouth and says, pay that man his money. And I'm like, wait, what? What just happened? <laughs> he beats me straight up. <laughs> I just stick it in you. <laughs> it's just like, like wait, 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 what, what, what are we watching here again? <laughs> like, when I look yeah. at like, yeah. I'm, and that's actually like the reason what I took away from the second movie. Because the first movie was the emotions of the poker playing, but then the second movie was like, what is this performance by John Malkovich? And that is my memory. Like, Especially when people would, would bring it up when we're talking about it, that's the first thing I bring up is like, what do you think about that accent? That's a choice. Nice nomination, Mr. Son of Bitch. <laughs> he chicks, he chicks. Oh, like uh, chicks. <laughs> he's got alligator blood. Uh, uh, yeah. So again, if I were to answer the guest questions or the new guest questions that we always have, I always love a good score in a movie. I have Christopher Young. I think one of the most charismatic things about the movie for me is just how engrossing the score is to setting up the mood of the film. Every pivotal moment is enhanced by the small trumpet or the muted trumpets or the like drags in certain sections. It's just a great score overall. And the fact that he had to kind of like rewrite it to me just makes it all that more important. Again, a movie, a good movie is a series of happy accidents. And for me, that's one of them. I I just love the score in this. I've seen the whole way through. I, I actually enjoyed the score. It helps the scene. It doesn't overpower the scene. It doesn't take you away from the scene. 
it's it I think it does what you need for score to do throughout the whole time. And the fact that you said they had to rewrite it, I, I can't imagine what the previous score would have been. And if it was anything completely different, I think it would have had a completely different effect on the movie. Well, and that it's a com- combination of the two scores that he wrote. Yeah. I think that that to me is like, okay, we had it in one phase, we had it in another phase, and you can't do too much of one without a little bit of the other. And so to blend those two together, I, I thought was impressive. Let's move to best scene. I only have five down. Oddly enough, I know for a movie that I love, but I think this movie for the most part can be relatively encapsulated in about five scenes. Mike loses everything. So the opening kind of cold open where he loses to Teddy KGB. I have the blind read where he goes into the judges game. I have worm getting out of prison and then going to that subsequent game in the uh, secret handshake club. I have the Taj Mahal. I skipped over the scene I didn't like. And then I have the final showdown. Now, the rest of it, to me, is just kind of filler. But those are the five like pivotal moments outside of that one, the cop game that they get beat up in, that I would say are the best five. Do you both want to overrule me and include the cop game? Ah, I wouldn't say the cop game. I, I really like the, the scene, the bathroom house scene with Kanish. Okay, so right before the showdown? All right. I really like that scene because it really informs you what's going on in someone's head. And it really cuts down Matt Damon's character size. Because you could feel like the whole time he's Matt Damon's really defending Matt. He's really defending Kanish's character the whole time and saying that he's he's trying to make his way. He's got his plays on this. And then he, in that scene, he basically lets it out. And he, what, at Warren's thought process, that he's, he's playing scared. He lets that, that's his, what he's really thinking about, Kinesh really, really thinks about. And Kinesh just really just cuts him down and explains what he's about. Like, this is a job. This is not, he's not doing it for fun. He's doing it to make money. And it's really, 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 I feel like that's kind of one of the big pushes towards Matt Damon's character figuring out how to read people and realizing what's going on. But that's where I would detract from where you earlier went with that is that supposedly what sets up the first point of the movie, and uh, this is where I think this is a great stroke of writing, is you explain what his action was to get him to go all in, basically, at the beginning of the movie, was his play against Johnny Chan at the Taj Mahal. And that... I forgot. I forgot that's in that That reversal of the conversation where the student versus the teacher, he kind of shows him up and says, well, yes, I understand where you're coming from, but this is why I did it. And while I may seem rash or impulsive, there was a methodology to my madness. I've sat with the best in the world and come out ahead. I get that. And that, I forgot that was in that scene as well. And that's also, I forgot about it before I was thinking, I had it read in my notes. I have it right there in my notes about that scene. But yeah, I, I do recall that part as well. I feel like, in my in my opinion, like the reading people I come back to, he thought at the beginning of the scene, he thought he could read people. He thought he could read situations, especially, oh, I went up against the best of the world. I know what I'm doing. And then he's immediately told, you, you're not, you're not at that level yet. You gotta, you gotta work your way through it. And that's what this movie is, just him trying to figure out how to actually read people. So what is the best scene then? Who wants to go? I mean, if neither of you has one ready, I, I'll give mine. The bass is my best scene. That's what I feel is the best scene. Okay. 
for me, I think it's the final showdown. It's not a sports movie without the final showdown. You know that it's leading towards that in some capacity, yet you're a little bit surprised when it initially happens because you can't believe he's walking back in there. But he's been kind of the villain in the background the whole time. He's there at the beginning. He's there at the end. And you know that in order to like redeem himself fully, he can't just get the money and pay it off. He has to beat the guy who beat him. That's got to be the point of it. And that's why I think it has the beats of a sports movie, because that happens all the time in sports movies where you get to face up against the guy that beat you. In this, I think that, what, 10 minutes, uh, the final 10 minutes of the movie or whatever it is, where he faces him up straight on and takes his or takes everything from him. I think is the most captivating of the entire movie. Yes, Malkovich is just like on a heater in the entire. He takes movie. his cookies from him, man. He takes yeah. them. Not hungry. <laughs> Satisfied now, Teddy. I mean, it's just a great scene. I I specifically went back and rewatched that one scene twice today after I'd already seen the movie twice this week. I feel like that scene has a lot of good one-liners. Yeah, it a lot does. Of good zingers towards each other. A lot of good. Cuts. I agree with you as final as the final scene, because I think that is exactly the f- best scene. It's also my favorite, I'll say. It's not mine. By the way, what was Teddy's tell? The cookies. What about him? That he wouldn't eat them. It specifically says, I'd let Teddy keep munching on those all evening, but I don't have the time. Yeah, it's he would eat the the cream out of them. That was the tell versus he would separate or did anything with them at all. He separated them every time, but whether he put it back or not is the difference, which again, I think one of the biggest criticisms of this movie is, is that's such a weird and easy tell for most people to figure out for a guy that's supposedly a shark. That being your tell that nobody else has figured out, even though you're like the high stakes poker club in New York. Seems a little far-fetched. It's a movie. It's a movie. True. True. It is very true. Like I said, that was my favorite scene. So, Dad, you disagreed. What is your favorite scene? The blind read. I just love that. I had to go back and watch that a couple of different times since because I'm trying to follow exactly what he figured out. But, I mean, the fact that he could come in there and just absolutely lay it all out, exactly what each person had and why, and what the play was, just floored me. What about you, Jesse? Okay, so the character's grammar, right? Or grandma? Grandma. Grandma. Yeah, right after, I think it's already they first meet him, uh, Worm and Mike's character, they first meet and they're leaving, and they're getting that, that hustle. They figured out where to go to next to get the money. Just that dialogue and that banter between them, it's so fast-paced, like bam, 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 bam. They're figuring out what's the next score, what's the next score after that, what's the next score after that, what's the next score after that. I kind of like that, just like that whole dialogue. Just the scene kind of stuck out to me, especially this last time I watched it. I'm like, that's actually kind of cool. I wonder how many times it took them to like film that scene in order to get that right on, right on that that timing right on for the whole scene. So that's that's what I liked about it. I don't know if you remembered or not. It's a pretty short scene. I definitely remember it. It was not something that stood out for me, but that's why uh, we have multiple people on the show. Most indelible moment for me was the blind read. I think from the first time I watched this up through now, 
every time I see it, it's still impressive, even though I think I've seen the movie probably at least a dozen times at this point. It's just like, how the hell do you do that? It, it feels like a magic trick. So it, it's always going to be one of the most amazing parts of the movie, even though because it's a short scene, it's not as in, as engrossing as the, either the first or the final scene. I would I would yep. agree. Both Hard of you I, had that as indelible? Yes, I would agree. Well, that makes it simple. I thought we'd have a few different nominees, but okay, cool. So that'll take us to our second break. We'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, and before we get to the Stanley rubric in a minute, if you're ever curious about our Master Greatest Movies of All Time list that has every graded movie we've ever discussed on the show, there's a link in the episode description of every episode of this show, or you can go to RonnieDuncanStudios.com backslash podcast and find it as the top entry on the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast show page. That is the grades we've done so far for all 174 movies we've graded, and we continue to add more each week. Make sure to check that out as we go and follow along. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes, we do. Richard Mall, 80, American actor, was in Night Court, House, Batman, the Animated Series. He's actually the third alumni of Batman, the Animated Series this year to pass away after Arlene Sorkin, the original voice of Harley Quinn, and of course, Kevin Conroy, Batman. I remember Richard Mall simply because I loved the show Night Court. And so his character, Bull, was just phenomenal. Bob Knight, American basketball coach, but was also the subject of at least, I believe, five different documentaries and two biopics. And he had a part playing himself in... Anger Management, cameo appearance. Yes. (laughs) Three-time national championship coach, the 1984 USA Olympic head coach as well. I mean, he was a character. He was somebody you either loved or hated. There really wasn't much in between. And this is one that we just had to add tonight because he passed away right before we started recording. Didn't he coach the last uh, undefeated season too? Yes, the 1976 Indiana Hoosier team. I believe they went 33-0. and 0. Ken Benson, Quinn Buckner was on that team. That was his first national championship winning team. He also won in 81 and 87, I believe. Had a couple of good runs when he was coaching at Texas Tech. Matthew Perry, 54, American and Canadian actor, was in the TV show Extremely Popular Friends and was in the movie and the sequels for the whole nine yards which has personal significance for yours truly, as well as my co-host. It was the first R-rated movie that I was taken to when I was, what, 10? And then I relayed the contents of what happened in the movie, including a naked Amanda Peet, full frontal, pulling a gun out of her ass, to the entire McDonald's the next day, while my mother had a friend that she was having lunch with. Oh no, it was a mother's group. It was a mother's group? I thought it was only yes, one person. No, there were like three or four mothers there. Yes. It's a, it's a McDonald's. It, that's not the worst that's probably happened there. Yeah, I know. But, well, well, I read this the thing and it said, you know, adult language. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> I mean, he's heard worse while I've been watching a Packer game. Not a problem. 
it didn't say anything about nudity. And so all of a sudden, Amanda Peet pops out the window full front, or I mean, topless. And I'm like, uh, and she was not was just mistake. topless. This was a mistake. Anyway, so of course, my son has periodically decided to always throw me under the bus whenever he could, did so again. It, it's very similar to how you see something novel and you want to share it with everybody. So when I saw the movie In and Out with Kevin Klein and he has to come out as a gay man, even though at first nobody thought he was actually a gay man. So I thought this was really funny that, oh, my God, there are gay people. So I had to relate this to my entire third grade class the next day when the teacher left the room. It was kind of like that. Yes, I got a call after that. Yeah, I know. From your third grade teacher. Yes, thank you. Anyway. Or like my Bible study on the Song of Solomon. Well, yeah, I shouldn't have showed you that. But <laughs> anyway, uh, so but he's most well known for the TV show Friends. And I know it's beloved by many. But to me, Friends was I never understood it. Kind of like eating a Vegemite sandwich. It just kind of like what? Yeah, it wasn't quite that for me, but I just I never understood nor cared about any of the characters. They all seemed so inscrutably juvenile and if they had no character development and they kept making the same mistakes over and over i think i got through half a season of the first season which is supposedly one of the better ones and i'm just like i don't want to watch any more of this i can't stand these people no i know unpopular opinion i have very similar opinions about seinfeld but oh well apparently 90s tv just did not appeal to me oh well so we remember these fondly for their contributions to sports, TV, music, and the arts with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. And as we do every week, let's make the awkward transition to best funniest lines. <laughs> Mike McD, listen, here's the thing. If you can't spot the sucker in your first half hour at the table, then you are the sucker. Whoever would like to go next. He'd beat me. Straight up. Pay that man his money. Mike McDermott, narrating. In Confessions of a Winning Poker Player, Jack King says, Few players recall big pots they've won. Strange as that seems. But every player can remember with remarkable accuracy the outstanding tough beats of his career. It seems true to me, because walking in here, I can hardly remember how I built my bankroll, but I can't stop thinking of how I lost it. Mike McDermott, you can shear a sheep many times, but skin him only once. And for the next Teddy KGB quote from Jesse, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't <laughs> I can just see it on your face. That's all I can remember is KGB quotes. You chicks, he's chicks, chicks all night. Oh, he's just chicks. <laughs> he trapped me. <laughs> all right, what you got left, Dad? <laughs> Professor Petrovsky talking to Mike. The last thing I took away from Meshiva was this. We can't run away from who we are. Our destiny chooses us. All right, my last one. I got Teddy KGB. In my club, I will splash the pot whenever the fuck I please. <laughs> it's a good thing that you're not, like, drinking anything. You'd be doing a spit take, Jess. 
All right, let's move to the Stanley rubric then. Legacy is up first. Dad, do you want to go first or second? Oh, I'll go first. Okay, let's start with the industry. This film is kind of forgotten for the most part, but then I started looking at the filmography. And I I, uh, I think it has been, well, first of all, I would say it's gotten more legs longer as it's gone on than it had initially. But really, this kind of, you know, Ed Norton had a run there. Matt Damon had a run. I think this film kind of helped them present themselves as being not typecast in certain roles. So for the industry, because of the influence on poker and the influence of those two primary actors who became quite large stars throughout the last 20 some years, I went with a 2.5 for the industry. For the public, this is a film that you know, I didn't know about, and I watch a lot of films and pay attention to. Now, there's a certain element of the public that have seen this that tend to be more migrated or more inclined towards poker. So I went with a two because I think there is some element of that that does. But I'm going with a two, or so though overall, I'm going with a four, a four point five. So you had a two point five and a two. Yes. Okay. So I think this is a movie as a cult classic that has a bigger legacy than it had an impact in its moment. I have a three for the industry as it promotes a specific type of sports movie. So it's a little bit niche. There are people within the industry that absolutely love this. I got a recommendation for this because the people on the ringer who I, I listen to a bunch of their shows won't shut up about this movie. It's like one of the favorite movies of like five or six of them, including Bill Simmons. So this has gotten kind of legs from some people in the industry, even though it was not popular at the time. And because it's a popular movie among the people in the poker profession. So because of that, and because it seems to be mentioned at least every year on the world series of poker as part of the responsibility, along with Chris moneymaker for the poker boom, and if you don't believe me, just watch any coverage of the World Series of Poker. It's mentioned. I give it a three on the industry. On the public, though, because this is more of a cult movie, it's something that has kind of lived with certain groups. I gave it a 3.5. So I have a 6.5 overall. All right. So now that we've kind of given you a sample, go ahead, Jesse. Yeah, so, yeah, I kind of split it up here, too. I had it as a as a full as a full number, but I split it up too since we go separating into industry and public. Industry, I, I can see it having more of an effect for the industry. This feels like it's a cult classic among people who are film buffs who actually go into movies, like movies. That's what they're for. They live and breathe movies. I think it has more of an effect there for this industry at the time. I, especially like the two characters that come, the two actors, Matt Damon and Ed Norton, that come out of this movie. There's you I mean you have two movies they did that year that overshadow it? I mean, I think Goodwill Hunting was the year before. I think it was '97, but no, it's the same year. Same year. Same year. But like, you have two movies that are they're more known for more overshadow this movie. I think it kind of gets lost in the shuffle, and I think that's the same thing for the public as well. Like when I was getting ready to watch this movie for for this podcast, I was asking people that I knew in my hometown about this movie. It's like, hey, I'm gonna watch this movie. It's gonna do it. And, 
not a single person could talk about it. Like, I think my mom said, isn't that one with Ben Affleck in it as well? Thinking <laughs> Goodwill Hunting, because I said Matt Damon's in it. So, um, yeah. So I gave the industry one as a, as a three. And then I said the public isn't large as a two. So that gives me a total of five. Like I said, like, it's more of a fact to, like, more of the cult classicness of it. And then it still has some staying power because it's kind of that niche poker. It's kind of mentioned every single year when you do the World Series of Poker. It's mentioned when you talk about poker. Have you seen Rounders? If you talk to any film buffs, they usually know what this movie is. But other than that, I could think it kind of gets lost in the shuffle with other movies during that year. So that's a 5.33 average between the three of us. Impact and significance. At the time, the industry did not care about this movie. It was very small. It was a Miramax film, which, again, will come up a little bit later when we get to classicness, as it always does. Yeah. And this was not well attended. It was not a big thing in the moment. The industry didn't care about this film really at all. It's kind of made any bones with the industry after the fact. The fact that you even have several critic reviews as the 90th highest grossing film of the year means you had to be deep into the catalog of that particular year to even find this thing. So I have actually a one on the industry side of things. On the public, though, you know, it was a small movie, but I'm giving this more points on the back end for becoming a cult classic within the five-year period that we normally extend for this category. By the time we get to the five-year period from 1998 to roughly 2002, 2003, is about the point where this movie really starts to take off. It was kind of a cable movie, became a very small, rentable, budget film that people like to pick up. It became popular among poker people that started to pick up this movie. So I give this a 3.5 on the public at the time as well, on the backing that you have to extend it over that five years. I might be moved, but I have a 4.5. Go ahead, Dad. I mean, it had decent reviews, but the industry itself didn't care. Didn't get any nominations, didn't get any buzz. Okay, um, you're not going to nominate 90 films in a particular year. I, I understand. I'm not it, holding it, nominations or lack of nominations against films after a certain point. When it stopped being that there were only 10 films released in a certain year, a lack of nominations is understandable. Okay. Thank you for your input. You're welcome. Going on to my conversation or my input of this, I went with a 2.5 for impact simply because it's about a 50-50 as far as critics and people in the industry seeing the film who liked it and thought it's something that it was something important or significant or well done. Okay. For the public it may have instilled a little bit of interest in poker, but it did nothing in the box office. And it wasn't until much later. So I went with a 1.5 for the public. So that gives me a four. Go ahead, Jess. Industry. I'm in the same boat, Sina. I don't see how it has any effect in the industry. Like even hammering the points, the 90th grossing film of that year. Like, it's not even the best film by the two main actors of that year. So it's like, I guess, yeah, I, I give it probably a one in industry. And the public in general, like, I already stated my opinion. I feel like the internet 
and ESPN had a bigger effect on the public's view of poker and the public and poker being in the in the mainstream. And yeah, it has a cult classicness to it, but like it's I think it's even a very small minute group when it comes to cult classiness. So I'd have to give them probably a two in the public opinion. So I'd have a total of three. So that's a three point eight three average between the three of us. Novelty. Jess, I'll let you take this one first. Nah. <laughs> I'll go second. <laughs> okay. I want to see how you guys split it up first in your numbers to see like you're splitting it up. <laughs> no, that only really applies to legacy and impact and significance. And we've kind of started to do that a little bit with rewatchability, but that's fine. I can go first because I normally let dad go first on classicness. It's to me, the first true poker movie. Like there's a, a level of detail and sophistication kind of like taking you behind the scenes with this movie that other gambling movies didn't. This one focuses so much on the cards and how you play a particular hand that it feels like an actual poker game in some of it, as opposed to other ones where you really don't care what the cards are or the sting where it doesn't matter what the cards are. You know, who's going to win going in because they're setting him up. So with stuff like that, it was just somewhat of ahead of its time, unfortunately, which is part of the reason that the box office, it suffered. But with being really one of the few gambling sports movies, I do think it is kind of a unicorn to itself. I also do think that the execution of this is above average to great for the most part. And that's where I give points. Dana doesn't necessarily all the time. So I'm going to go with an eight. I, th- I do think this separates itself as a bit different. All right. Go ahead, number two. Oh, I'm number two? Okay. No, he said he wanted to go number two. Okay, so go ahead. Oh. <laughs> I tried <laughs> to let him leave. Oh, I kind of lost to that one. Uh, yeah, so, <laughs> I mean, as a poker film, I think, yeah, I'm in the agreement. I think it stands out as compared to any sort of card film that we've seen out there. I'm thinking of, like, Maverick newer movies like 21 stuff like that i mean 21 kind of goes into the, the depths of how to read cards coming off the deck but like but novelty itself that's why all i can see is the novelty of it is that it, it goes a little bit more depth in the actual game itself but like really thinking about it it's, it kind of just reminds me of every single drama from the 90s it, it feels like it's interchangeable with every other like matt damon movie Minus well, Goodwill Hunting from the nineteen nineties. So, I I I know you put like eight. I'm sitting at like maybe a two for novelty. Ooh. Like I, it just it doesn't stand out for me other than the fact that it's a very good poker movie. Okay, maybe I need to go higher to push the average a little bit. <laughs> All right, Dad, find the middle point. Okay, I originally had an eight, and uh, I filled my numbers out yesterday but then i think about it for a while and then i thought about it and i'm going hmm it's too high and i'm going to tell you why a film that i remembered going this is almost the same type of film it's an insider film about gambling and knowing your opponent and dealing with stuff you're gonna say the hustler aren't you yes i am 1960 the hustler 
I think this is a repackaging of that to some extent. So I had to give it a point down. So I went with a seven for novelty because of that, because I think this has a lot of the same elements as the hustler. All right. Of course you'd bring Newman and Jackie Gleason into it. Yes. Yeah. Well, I was going to say Mr. Blue eyes, but all right. I still think that film's awesome, by the way. How do we ingredients? So that's a 5.67 average between the three of us. Classicness. Go ahead, Pop. I mean, the the law and how things acted in the law was dead on. As I, I've pointed out, I've never, I've said this multiple times, and I've never had a lawyer tell me I'm wrong. Law school is like having a root canal through your anus. And the uh, the way that the judges were acting in the mock trial and all the stress and the studying and all that, I, I almost think they soft-sold it a bit. So I kind of was wondering, should I give it a little point down for that? But I'm like, nah, you're trying to make it palatable. Because if you really showed what law school was like, no one would ever want to watch the film. Because it's not pleasant at all. So overall... You know, the sleaziness of Ed Norton and all that. I didn't have a whole lot of problems with a lot of the classicness. So I went, I started out, you know, because, you know, we generally look at a classicness as a seven and go up or down. And I originally went to an eight. And then I thought about, oh, shit, this is a Weinstein film. So even though this is we, not a now, highly. Hold on, hold, hold on. We have never officially taken points off for being a Weinstein film. I know. So I, I just mentioned went, it like, every single time, but we have uh, never actually taken points off. Well, it's not like this is one of those like uh, Shakespeare in love where Weinstein put himself out in the public to like, you know, drum the beat and make sure that it got better, etc. So I, I've really wrestled and your point is taken because I was originally going to give it a half point down for being a Weinstein film. But I'll leave it where it was, which is novelty of, or excuse me, classicness of an eight. So all that to get back to an eight. Yeah, I guess. Okay. So part of what this category is, and it's our most complicated category, it's, it's always difficult to nail down exactly what this is. There's kind of an aesthetic feeling, whether it's aged well or was ahead of its time. I do think to a degree this movie was ahead of its time by about five years. So I kind of give up a few points for that. And all the little things that I could maybe criticize about the movie, such as Miramax slash Weinstein, the fact that they commonly throw out poker names such as Johnny Chan or Doyle Brunson, that the average person has no idea who those people are. Not to mention, I've mentioned it a few times already, but it feels a little dated with the poker playing in like weird back rooms and shady places all over town. But it's still somewhat ahead of its time as far as like the sophistication of poker and that Texas Hold'em had not yet become the primary game that everybody knew until 2002, 2003, 2004. And it became much more popularly used and played with everybody. I remember getting my first like poker set in about 2004, 2005 and playing my sisters. 
Boy, there was a sheep for shearing. Well, yeah, it, because you're playing no stakes, they uh, they had a lot of beginner's luck because they'd stay in on hands they had no business winning. <laughs> and they'd catch some really weird rivers. Yeah. But anyway, I also had an eight. All right, so Jesse, where's your one come in at? <laughs> so the po- kind of lost on like the poker terms. They use it a lot. I don't, I don't know if they're necessarily would make sense to a mod to basically the modern audience. Anyone that wasn't there during the time. I don't know if they. I don't know if the terms were actually on par. Because I, I can't think of the terms they use, but they use a lot of terms with poker specific plays and like i don't know if they're still the same same thing with the back the back seediness that ma- that makes more sense i mean that's kind of gives you vision a, a time capsule of what's going on things that really stuck out to me is i mean i i love john malkovich's accent i think it's hilarious but i don't think it's aged well <laughs> <laughs> i mean it was a poor decision you know, 25 years ago, and I still like it's to be an even worse decision now. Like, I think, I think you catch more ridicule. Cause what's up? Who did the Pope's exorcist? That what was that character. Oh, that um, Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe. Like his accent is close to an Italian accent. He's actually kind of, in my opinion, I feel like it's close and he catches so much flack for it. And John Malkovich is so off. Like, I feel like it's almost to a point it could be offensive to some people, especially people who might be Russian or Ukrainian. It might be offensive to them. And I don't, the big thing that really stuck out to me was for classicness. Why, why would you beat a dog in the movie? There's, there's no point. Like it doesn't, we already know he's a bad guy. You already know he's got, he wants money. Like you already know he's, he's, He's bad news. What's the point of reinforcing that by hitting the dog? And like, I just, that, that threw me off there. I'm like, it's, I'm just thinking of like, yeah, I could have liked it at the time 20 years ago, but like, no, that's, no one's going to like that. No one's going to want to see that. that. That's what I'm approaching the classicness and like, would people like it now as compared to 25 years ago? I mean, I think a lot of people would be kind of off put by a lot, by this movie. So I, I gave it low. I gave it a five as compared okay. to you guys eight. But like, there's things that I thought were great. I thought the the back alley scenes, I thought people would understand that, especially if they're thinking like, if it's still based 25 years ago, it's kind of a snapshot of what poker was before ESPN took over. Yeah. So to speak. So that's a seven average between the three of us. I mean, if you're going to make the case against that movie for classicness, it's a very white movie for being in the nineties yet eerily white for as many supposed nationalities that are in there and it being New York. But I'll at least give them a little bit of credit because they involved some Russians and some Jews and Italians, Greeks. Okay. I thought about that. And quite frankly, I gave it a little bit of juice in the opposite direction. This is a film that could be considered seedy and underworld and did not put minorities in it as being like the stereotype of being underworld and seedy, I think actually benefited the film. All right, let's move to rewatchability because I will probably be the highest on this of the three of us. I'm going to go that four that I would put it on on my own 
I put this movie on quite a bit. It's starting to approach like guilty pleasure movie status. It's getting close to a Knight's Tale level for me. But if it's on, I am almost assuredly leaving it on unless I have to absolutely go somewhere, which to me is about a 4.5. So I have an 8.5 for rewatchability. Before, before I start, you, you said a Knight's Tale? Yes, I said A Knight's Tale is like my true guilty pleasure movie. I don't know what it is about that stupid movie other than it's also kind of a sports movie and it's just involving charismatic people, but yes. It's rock music in the Middle Ages. I mean, that's where it goes. (laughs) Your point? It's a medieval sports movie. Yeah, love it. I just wonder, because that's that's one of my guilty pleasures as well. I absolutely love that movie. Oh, okay, I see it. Normally, people would make fun of me for it, so that's why it's a guilty pleasure movie. Uh, but for me, I, I'm just going to interject mine. I'm, I'm a little bit lower. I, you said 8.5. I'm an 8 on rewatchability. Uh, really? I, I, I find this movie enjoyable to watch. I like I like the characters. Like, at the very least, Mr. KGB entertains me <laughs> with his quotes. And I'm like, at the very least, I'm, I'm laughing at that because just the things that come out of his mouth don't, don't make sense. But... Just like the the scenes, how the characters are built up, I, I love the score. Like everything about this movie screams rewatchability to me, and I just love it. Like I put it as an eight. All right, Dad. As the dentist said, not everything that comes out of a mouth is great. Anyway, this for me is a film that if it's on, you know, I'll watch it. If I'm flipping through the stations and so whatever, I'll maybe watch it for a bit. But, I mean, it's not anything exceptional to me. It's not my comfort level. So I just went with a straight seven. A little higher than I thought. Yeah, if it's one that if I'm sitting around and there's a group of us and we're not, you know, I may throw this out as the, has anybody ever seen this film? Do you want to watch it? Yeah. So, seven. All right. So that's a 7.83 average between the three of us. For audience score, we had an 82% for Google users and an 87% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us a 8.45. So to recap the categories, we had a 5.33 average for Legacy, a 3.83 average for Impact and Significance, 5.67 for Novelty, a 7 for Classicness, a 7.83 for Rewatchability, and an 8.45 for audience score, giving us a final total of... 38.5 38.11 and currently placing it on our list just 0.01 ahead of idiocracy okay we feed out idiocracy Woo! and just <laughs> under the terminator oh the original one not t2 yeah is t2 higher on the list i we haven't quite gotten to that film yet I would imagine we did the original Terminator so that we could do T2 at a future point in time, but we haven't gotten around to it. And especially since we've been focusing more on certain anniversaries, if I remember right, T2 is either 1991 or 1992. So it'll probably be a couple of years before that'll come up. Are you sure it's not 94? I felt like it was 10 years after the original. It's 1991. Oh, man. So it's only seven. Just enough time to age the technology so that Robert Patrick could melt through the bars. Dad will eventually know what that means. 
Anyway, if you disagree with any of our scoring, you can certainly write to us on all of our socials or at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com or find us on any of our socials at Podcast on Instagram, X, or TikTok. And uh, we just started our Letterboxd page, so if you're a Letterboxd user, you can also find us there. Uh, we're going to be having some new content up on there, including some of our lists based on how our official list has gone to this point. Remaining questions. All right, so we already did the Bad Movie Accent Hall of Fame, but what actually happens at the World Series of Poker? It's anybody's guess, but I think for anybody that's watched the World Series of Poker, they know that the people that love this movie have been wanting a sequel for probably 20 years. In fact, certain people have been begging for it, and apparently they've just never had the idea. And now I'm not sure if Koppelman and Levine, after Billions is over now, it just had its last episode last week, if they're also going to be doing Millions and Trillions, it seemed like they left it open-ended for Showtime because apparently all Showtime and CBS wants to do is conservative play stuff where we're just doing sequels on sequels on sequels or we're doing stuff for the can't-find-the-remote crowd. But I don't know. I, I would like to see what actually happens in a sequel version of this where we know what happens at the World Series of Poker. I don't think Mike McD, knowing how he got to this point, would win. Just personally. I thought they threw out there, maybe I'm wrong, that they, maybe the, one of the thoughts for the Rounders of Two would actually be like the Adventures of Worm. <laughs> actually kind of fall and see what, he, what happened to him. Well, and that was my second point, or my second big question is, is do they ever reconcile? I, I wouldn't think they do. Yeah, well, they will. Because they'll get to be old men. And it won't matter, and they'll kind of run into each other, and they may have lunch. And You think Worm is going to make it to that old man status? That's a good point. I mean, from the end of the movie, he says, I think I'm even with Worm. To me, that's like he's not actually holding a grudge because he came out on the other side. But that doesn't mean he necessarily wants him in his life. Like, as far as reconciling, I think they can have a mutual understanding where okay, we grew up together, but I really don't want much to do with you. And that's happened with childhood friends all over the place. So I don't see that as like out of the realm of possibility, but it would definitely have to be a, a storyline of the second movie if there were to ever be one. I just think it would be the, the adventures of Worm. <laughs> Fair enough. Any remaining questions for either of you? Not for me. I'm trying to think about a question. Can't think of anything right now, but like, let me think about it. <laughs> Maybe in about five minutes. Okay. Maybe right <laughs> when we hit stop recording, that question will pop in my head. That sounds about right. Ah, yes. All right. So, oh, normally, yes. what? <laughs> Go ahead. Question. You you thought of one now? Okay. Yes. Who would be the poker players in this new one when he goes to fight? Would he go? Would he be going up against? The poker players from 98, or would they fast forward it to a different World Series of poker? I would guess that because it, if you're going to do a sequel, you probably have to have Matt Damon and, and Edward Norton, that they only do maybe flashback sequences. I hope they don't do de-aging because that's gone over poorly so far. 
if you're talking about the actual poker pros that might be in it, I'm thinking like a Phil Ivy would make sense. He seems like the kind of guy that would get involved. I could picture a few other ones that I know of offhand. I I think given that Phil Hellmuth turned down doing a spot in this movie, that he'd probably want his opportunity to make up for that if there were a sequel. But, you know. Was it just the one poker pro that was in it? Uh, yeah, I think Johnny Chan was the only one that I knew of that was actually in it. Yeah. that that That's my curious. If, like, if they'd have more in there, be more involved since it's seems to be a mainstay with the poker world. Yeah. It would be hard not to have Chris Moneymaker in there, to be honest, given how linked together by what happened and with the rise in popularity of poker. Oh, and a sub-question, would they be bigger parts? I mean, would they be main characters in the movie? Potentially. Maybe. And then would that detract or some be attacked from it? Would it not? It depends on if you're talking to people that like watch poker or know the big names. Like, I think it would be a little off-putting to see them be in a big part. Like, if Daniel Negreanu is your villain, like that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But if it's just the outsider who has no experience with these people, it would probably work. It's just for all the main people that would be going to see this in the first place that know who these guys are. I, I don't think that would necessarily work. It's one thing if you show up and they're at like a final table and they're just sitting around, they're a cameo appearance, but to have them be intrinsically involved in the movie, I think might detract from your main audience that you're trying to get out to see this in the first place. And also, I don't think this is a movie that would come out in theaters. I mean, even if it did get a sequel to me, this is like Apple TV plus, And we just throw it up on streaming. Oh, would it, oh, if we're going to do that, would it be a miniseries? I could see that, too. Yeah, playing the poker tour for a year. Well, it doesn't even have to be that long. If you just go over, like, four episodes on the four days of the tournament. That'd be interesting. I'd be up for that. Oh, I'd definitely watch it. I just don't know how many other people would. Especially if it has Matt Damon. Oh, if it's got Matt Damon in it, he's got more draw now than he had 25 years ago. I'm not sure that's necessarily true. Like, if you want to talk around the the time of The Martian, yeah, I think that he could have easily sold a movie. But at this day and age, I mean, The Last Duel barely pulled anything, and it had both uh, Affleck and Damon. And Air did okay, but it didn't make enough of a profit for Prime. So I'm not even sure that necessarily has enough of a draw. And they don't do, like, Marvel films. So... And also, yet, yet, we still don't have metrics. Well, I take that back. Mac Damon is in Thor Ragnarok as a cameo, but that's beside the point. I liked Air. I thought Air was fun. Well, right, but that's not the type of movie that a bunch of people are going to go out of their way to see, except if it's like on Netflix. You know, you just release it and then a bunch of people will watch it. But how would we know? it might be in the top 10 of their most watched films for like two weeks and then it'll be gone. Yeah. All right. Normally at this point I would ask for remaining thoughts. We're running a little over time, but dad wanted to share his thoughts on killers of the flower moon. So I will give you about two minutes here. Okay. You and Tom, you and I watched killers over the weekend. And I thought it was an interesting plot device because 
it was told not in the story of the FBI investigating it or in the story of the uh, Native Americans or Indians living it, but it was told in the story of the the criminals who were perpetrating the murders. And I thought it was kind of an odd device. And then it dawned on me. Scorsese has done an entire career of the underworld and of gangsters. So what he did was is he did another gangster film set in Oklahoma with Native Americans as a subplot. And this is nothing more than Goodfellows meets Dancing with Wolves. I'll throw in a third movie. The one that stuck out the most to me, it's not nearly as funny, but also meets Fargo. <laughs> yeah, it's about, because it's they're, about right. They're so bumbling and incompetent at putting together this stuff that it could be comedy had they focused on that more. But that's never been a strong suit of what Scorsese does. He has a very narrow niche of film, if you ask me. And And then it raises the other point, which is, even though I absolutely love the film, and it's one of my favorites, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, James Stewart, at that point in his life, being in his late 50s, playing a young lawyer, is ridiculous. He looks nothing like a young lawyer, and it's so off-putting that I, I just couldn't. And the idea that, you know, well, you know, well, you know, uh, DiCaprio could, you know, looks. No, he doesn't. He's got so many lines and wrinkles. He looks every bit of 50 something that he is. He is not able to play a guy in his early to mid 30s anymore. And so I had a hard time with that from the entire film. I love DiCaprio, but he's very weathered in this film. I, I disagree. Yes. I, he's no matter what, he's the most beautiful man in the world. <laughs> okay, <laughs> sorry. I can't. I couldn't Thank you for the comment, that one. Jesse. I mean, uh, okay. I don't know where to go after that. I do. That'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. <laughs> I can't take it anymore, Felix. I'm cracking up. Everything you do irritates me. And when you're not here, the things I know you're going to do when you come in irritate me. You leave me little notes on my pillow. I told you 158 times I can't stand little notes on my pillow. We're all out of cornflakes. F you. Took me three hours to figure F you was Felix Unger. Next week, for our 189th episode, we discuss the buddy comedy The Odd Couple from 1968, celebrating its 55th anniversary this year. Directed by Gene Sachs, written by Neil Simon, music by Neil Hefty, starring Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at the new RodneyDuncanStudios.com or at GreatestAllTimeMoviePodcast at gmail.com. Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast or find us on Instagram, X, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Rodney Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. 